I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 16. While you turn there, we've got a new uh, edition of the Baptist Times. It's out on the back table. Take one home with you. And uh, just got some interesting stuff about a working church, being involved in your church, and things like that. I wrote an article in it called The Obituary. And so get a copy of that. It's free. Just take it home with you and uh, enjoy it. It'll give you something to read uh, during the week, and you might find something in there that's of interest to you. Judges chapter 16. Here we are again back on the story of Samson. Judges chapter 16, and uh, let's look in verse number 23. Judges 16 and verse 23. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered themselves together to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw it, they praised their God. For they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport, and they put him between the pillars. Samson said unto the lad that led him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there, and there were upon the roof about three thousand men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and upon which it was borne up, uh, of the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtiol in the burying place of Manoah his father. And he judged Israel 20 years. Father, help us. Dear God, give us what we have need of today. Lord, we're on familiar territory. We've been here for weeks and I, I thank you for what you've done. And I pray that today you'll once again take something from this so rich passage of Scripture and give us what you would have us to have from it. And we'll thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray these things. Amen. I want to remind you this morning as we begin of a quote that I gave you last week from C.S. Lewis. And he said this, Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Everything stems from Samson's pride. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Samson's kryptonite and that, that his kryptonite, rather than the green substance from Krypton that weakened Superman, his kryptonite was his pride. Today I want to talk with you about the weakness of the strong man. Because in, in every instance in Samson's life, we find a commonality, a, a theme that is there in everything that happens. I want to remind you that every sin in the life of Samson all 
was born from his pride, his lust for women, his breaking of his Nazarite vow, his disobedience to his parents, his self-absorption, his rejecting of the Spirit's warning, his unchecked rage, every single vice in Samson's life can all be traced back to his, his pride. And pride was like a large and wide flowing river that gave birth to tributaries and, and creeks that spring off from it. And yet they all can be traced back to the main flow of that pride. But I want to tell you there's something else that his pride gave birth to besides the lust and the rage and the self-absorption. I, I think it became the single most controlling motivation in the life of this strong man. And it can be seen in the events of his life from the very beginning to the tragic end. And that is his never-ending quest for revenge. If you read Samson's story, you become immediately aware of the fact that he could not stomach the fact that somebody had wronged him and gotten by with it. It ate at the core of who he was. He could not, he could not sleep at night, it seems. If, if somebody had struck out at him and, and there was no way for him to strike back, there was no way to, to get even, it bothered Samson, it ate away at at who he was. He couldn't rest until he had struck back with a vengeance. And he wasn't satisfied with, with just getting even. That, that never was the case. He didn't want to even the score. He wanted to cause them an abundance more of pain and suffering and agony than he had suffered himself. A pound of flesh and a pint of blood never seemed to quench his thirst for revenge. It drove him, listen, revenge the desire, the thirst, the quest for revenge drove him until the last agonizing scene of Samson's life when, when, when he draws his final labored breath beneath the weight of Dagon's temple. His motivating factor, as we've read, even there, even there, was for revenge. I want to say to you, first of all, that the thirst for revenge can never be satisfied. We recall in chapter 14 and verse number 1, and even in chapter 13, verse 25, that the Holy Spirit of God had warned Samson. First of all, he, he warned them through coming upon him and trying to restrain him from doing something that would again and again and again and again break his Nazarite vow. God's Spirit, God's Spirit interrupted him. He warned him, tried to restrain him. He also warned Samson through the uh, counsel of his parents, and yet Samson would, he would heed none of his parents' counsel. He didn't want to hear what they had to say. He was done with the lectures. He was done with the, with, with the, uh, uh, the, the warnings. He wanted nothing. He just simply said, drop it, and you get her for me. He demanded things of his parents rather than listening to them. There was even the young lion that stood in his path, which was a clear warning from God to turn around and go back. The roar of the lion should have made him aware of the fact he was headed in the wrong direction on the wrong road, and yet Samson disregards these warnings, and he barges full steam ahead with his plans for his wedding in Timnath. Then at the wedding feast, with alcohol flowing, he takes center stage, and tosses out his riddle. He loses the bet and now owes a sizable debt 
because of that foolishness. And, and he's angry. And in his anger, he has a desire for one singular thing and one thing only. He wants revenge for his public humiliation. The Spirit of God comes upon him, warns him, tries to restrain him once again from his determined path. But instead of yielding, Samson seeks revenge, storms off to Ascalon, listen to me, and murders 30 men, stripping them of their clothes. Now, if you can find something spiritual in that, you're, you're, you're a much better Bible scholar than anybody I know. He murders 30 men because he owes a debt, because of a stupid riddle that he made at a drunken party. No. No, you can cut that in 40 different directions, but you don't come up with anything spiritual out of that whatsoever. And in fact, in doing so, he violates his Nazarite vow again. Then boiling with anger, he returns to his own city, leaving his wife behind. Summers down some, decides, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, you know, get reconnected and I'm going to claim my bride. So he goes back down there and finds out that her dad had given her to his best men because he thought Samson hated her. That word hate is a, is a strong word. But in those days, a wife that was forsaken was viewed hated of her husband. So he walks off, leaves her behind. What would you think? We despises her because she told the, the, the Philistines, uh, her people, told them of the riddle. And so the dad-in-law just thinks it's all over with. And, and, and so he gives her to his best man for marriage. Well, Samson, what does he do again? He doesn't sit down and say, well, you know what? I really shouldn't have gone. The guy even goes as far as to offer him the younger daughter. Just take her. I'm sorry I wronged you, but take her. Well, no, no, Samson, you don't wrong Samson and talk it out. Now feeling himself wronged again, even though he had abandoned his wife and, and, and walked away from her, uh, now, now he seeks revenge. Okay, here's what I'll do. You took her, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy your economy. I'm going to burn your crops. I'm going to devastate your fields. You think you're going to put up in the, in, the, in the freezer something to eat for the winter. You're not going to have anything left because I'm, I'm, I'm going to burn everything you've got. You'll have nothing to harvest. I want to remind you who he's dealing with. He's dealing with Philistines. And Philistines are the people of the world. And the people of the world, their, their law is the law of the payback. The tragedy is that Samson is, is, a, is supposed to be a man of God of the children of Israel, yet he has the same principles that the people of the world do. So here's, here's, here's Samson revenge, here's the Philistines revenge, and the reality of the matter, neither one of them can get enough of paying each other back. And so they, they, they go down, and they strike back, and they execute. Can you imagine? We're horrified by that. Are you kidding me? They executed his father-in-law? And his wife, they burned them with fire. And the people of God that read that, we're up in alarms. It's like, my soul, how could that possibly, how could a human being do that? But isn't it funny that we give Samson a pass for murdering 30 people just before that? No, no, no. Murder and murder. Murder plus murder equals murder. 32 people have died as a result of this. 30 of them are on Samson's account. So Samson now decides that he's going to exact revenge.
by going on another killing spree. And so he kills an undisclosed amount of Philistines. And in chapter 15, verse 8, the Bible says he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock, Edom. So the Philistines now find out Samson's down there sitting on top of that rock. So they come down to Judah and tell the men of Judah, we can kill all y'all. We're going to kill all of y'all. We're after Samson, but you're in our way. We're going to kill every one of y'all. So, uh, so, so 3,000 of the men of Judah go down and say, dude, what are you doing? You're, 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 they're going to kill all of us. You're, they're wiping out our families. You've got us in your trouble now. And so Samson turns himself in to get the men of Judah out of the trouble that he got them in. Now, wait a minute. Okay, He turns himself in. The Spirit of God comes upon him again and says, don't do this. It's, it's the word restrain. He's restraining him. So you know what Samson does? He finds the jawbone of an ass, picks it up, and kills a thousand men. You understand, you see what's happening here, it's, 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 it's escalating. It's escalating. Now, let's go to where we were at. Here's Samson, chapter 16. Revenge, 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 revenge. And I'm not even sure that the disobedience of his parents wasn't his type of revenge to get back at them for how they had raised him in a God-honoring home. I think, I think that he just said, you know what? I'm sick of your rules. I'm sick of Israel. I'm not living here where people are watching me and they have expectations of me. So I'm going to pack my grip and I'm going out into the world. I'm not sure that wasn't revenge. But I know that at the end of his life, his eyes have been gouged out and, and, and he's standing in the pillars. Wait a minute. And all the people in the temple of Dagon are crying out, our God killed his God. Our God won victory. You know what Dagon was? He was the God of the crops. The God of fertility. And so all, the, all the, the, the Philistine children are saying, they're saying, our God, our God's better than your God. Our God's bigger than your God. You had one victory over us, but our God, our God has given us victory and taken your eyes. Jehovah is nothing. The God of Israel is a farce. Dagon. You know who God is? Dagon is his name, not Jehovah. Well, here's Samson. What's Samson going to do? You're not going to talk about my God that way. You're not going to talk about my God that way. You'll pay for that. I'll stand up one final time in my life, and I'll, I'll be counted for God. You won't get by with saying that. Your God's a fake. Dagon's a fake. Didn't bother him at all. Wasn't concerned about God's reputation at all. You know what he said? He said, God, would you help avenge me of my two eyes? I'm mad. I can't see. I'm being led by the hand by a kid. I've lost my eyesight. Would you let me get revenge one final time in my life? Compare that, would you please, with David when he waded into the Valley of Elah to face Goliath. You know what David said? He said, here's, here's why I'm here. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 46. David's motivation was, 
I want to I make the name of God known. Samson said, I want to get revenge for my eyes. I want to just tell you, the thirst for revenge never ends. Second of all, I want you to know this. The damage caused by revenge can never be predicted. So he gets, he gets angry and, and seeks revenge. Why? Well, think, let's do it again. I want you to grab, I just want to grab a handful of the lunacy of what he's hap- what's happening here. Here's, why, is he, why is he on a killing spree? Because he made a joke, a riddle, threw it out, booze is flowing. And his riddle is solved because his riddle is solved by the 30 guys, by the way, who solved the riddle. The 30 guys, did they do it by shenanigans? Yes. But it was 30 guys that were hired to be his friends. Remember, Samson had no friends. He only had enemies. Not one single person came from his hometown to his wedding. Nobody was there. So they have to hire guys to, be, to hang out with him. Look, he's got some friends. No, they are hired. The hired guys find out the riddle, solve the riddle, and so Samson, Samson just murders them. Well, the men of Judah, when they came down to the rock, they said, uh, why are you come up against us? Why are you doing this? No, no, he, they didn't say to the Philistines, why, are you, why, are you, why have you come up against us? They said that to Samson. Samson, why are you against us? We're your people. You're born amongst us. We're Israelites. Why are you doing this against us? So Samson's personal dispute has now involved 3,000 men that were innocent and has become a matter of national security. I mean, it is. Here's a guy, here's a guy got a fight going on, and his fight involves 3,000 other people, and all of a sudden now, it's, a, it's an issue of national security. Judah's going to go to war. One lion dead, 30 men dead, destroyed crops, an unnumbered amount of men dead, a thousand men dead. At the end of his life, 3,000 dead. Well, that's a lot of destruction for one guy. Do you ever notice that it gets, that, that, that it, it gets I mean, it's a lion, okay. Not a lot of people mourning over the lion, but then there's 30 guys. Then there's an unnumbered amount, and, 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 and then there's a thousand I mean, the destruction caused by his quest for revenge is getting more and more. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. I want you to look at something. I want you to see this, because this is important. Hebrews chapter, listen, what am I saying? I'm saying the damage caused by revenge can never be predicted, okay? Look at me. Once you lock in, listen, once you bird dog revenge, once you start bird dogging revenge, you can never predict who all is going to get involved in that. I mean, he goes... He just goes from one-on-one. He's arguing with his parents. He's killing a lion. And when it's over with, there's a path of carnage left behind him. So you, you can't say, hey, you know, this is just between me and them. No, it's never just between me and them. Because there are others that are involved. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Watch this. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Circle that word, you trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So there's two words, you and many. You and many. Okay? You and many. It may start with you, but it winds up with many. No, no, there's a root of bitterness. You know what a root of bitterness? It's something small that you just take, and you say, okay, this isn't very big. I'm just going to stick this in my top pocket. Now, I, 
I'm, I, I, you know, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to forgive. I'm angry. I'm, I'm, I don't like them. I'm, I'm sticking this right here. I'm, it's not a big thing, but, but I'm not letting go of that. And we just tuck that down in our life, and it's a root of bitterness. You know what happens to roots? They grow. Okay? They grow. What's that tree in our front yard, Sue? A sycamore tree. Are you kidding me? We've got roots from our sycamore tree that, that, that are actually coming up under the mall in downtown Boise. It's unbelievable. What? You got this hard pan. We never had that in Georgia. Well, we did some. You just ran over them with lawnmowers. But anyhow, this is a nice front yard, and we plant a sycamore tree in our front yard by the recommendation of people uh, in, in some of the, the uh, uh, plant places around. Plant a sycamore tree. We plant a sycamore tree. It's the biggest tree. Of course, of course we poured Zamzo's tree stuff on it and and so now it's like the jolly green giant planes have to avert around it uh that fly over our house this giant tree in our front yard and these huge roots we're going to hollow them out and make playrooms for the kids it's unbelievable it, all these well here's what happens we take a little root and just stick it here and say ain't nothing no no let me tell you what will happen to that little root that little root of bitterness will turn into something that will overshadow and overtake your life and it'll begin to spring up in places you never thought you'd see it. And it begins with you. But it defiles many when it's all said and done. So Samson thought, okay, I'm going to deal with this. No, no, Samson, you got a lot of people involved. And the damage caused by revenge can never be predicted. Number three, revenge is always justified. Listen to this. Revenge is always justified by comparison. Okay? This is revenge. Revenge is the act of inflicting harm or hurt on someone for an injury or a wrong suffered at their hands. Okay? So here's the idea of revenge. Really? You did that to me? Well, here's what I'm going to do to you. Okay? So, so you wronged me. I'm going to wrong you right back. That's revenge. I'm going to, get, I'm going to at least get even, but it always goes beyond that. Chapter 15, verse 3, And Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than Philistines. Look at chapter 15, verse 3. Now shall I be more blameless than Philistines, though I do them a pleasure. Displeasure. You can hear him thinking, Did you see what they did to me? I didn't start this. Don't look at me. Don't point the finger at me. Don't, don't blame me. I had every right. Pastor, I had every right. Boy, how many times have I heard that over the years? by some toxic individual that had taken upon themselves the authority to exact revenge upon somebody else. Pastor, I had every right to do what I did after what they did to me. Don't blame me for this. It's not my fault. Verse 15, look at verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 11. Look at this. Watch this. Look at it. It's so clear. Chapter 15, verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock Edom and said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, listen to Samson's words, As they did unto me, so have I done unto them. Yeah, they did it first and I did it second. And if they hit me again, I'll hit them right back. You see, here's the scary thing about revenge. Listen carefully. This is the scary thing about revenge. Once we're bent on getting even, we become blind to the larger story of our own involvement in the mess. So once I, 
Once I take that step, you're not going to do that to me and get by with it. And once I decide I'm going to get even, blow for blow, once I make that step, I forget what I had done that was a part of the process that brought us to where we are. You become so engulfed in rage and revenge that you become blinded and we become convinced that, that we're blameless and that our retaliation is innocent and we declare ourselves, this is a guy that just killed 3,300 uh, 3, uh, men. 30 men, and then, uh, and then an undisclosed amount, and then 1,000, and then three. Here's a, listen, this is a guy, there's a bunch of dead bodies behind him, 30 men killed and stripped, look at me, and he's declaring himself the victim. Can you imagine? I got blood on my hands, but I'm innocent. No, I killed him. But I'm the victim. It's amazing what revenge does. We shift the blame. We demonize the actions of others while maintaining our own innocence. Now listen carefully. Everybody with me? Listen to this. Well, Pastor, doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Doesn't the the good book, somewhere in the good book, is that written an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Yeah, God gave that for mercy. What do you mean, preacher? Eye for eye, that's mercy. Yes, mercy. Now, he changed it later. We know that. Jesus did. But wait a minute. That's mercy because, because what he did is he put limits on it. See, here's the nature of man. You're going to steal my chicken? I'll kill your cow. You're going to kill my cow? I'll kill your daughter. You're going to mess with my daughter? I'll burn your house. I'll kill your... No, no. The nature of sinful man is to always go beyond And so what God said is this, you can't go any further than getting the exact amount taken from you paid back. So if you lost an eye, you can go no further than an eye. So so knowing the sinfulness of man, God places places boundaries upon it. And by the way, um, it, it, it crippled the revenge cycle is what that verse did, but Samson wasn't paying attention to that. You guess my riddle? I'll kill 30 of your men. You see? So, so he, he's showing no reverence for the law whatsoever. But by the way, let's just go ahead and talk about what Jesus said. Here's Jesus. It's not an eye for an eye for a tooth for a tooth, all right? Here, here's Jesus. Ready? Love your enemies. Oh, man, I like that. You know, sometimes I say, what's your life verse? Nobody ever says, love your enemies. That's my life verse. I love it. No, no. He, Jesus, Matthew 5, 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do what? Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Look at, look at the responses. Love, bless, do good, and pray. That has nothing to do with revenge. Okay. Revenge isn't in that. Jesus said, love them, do good to them, pray for them. Let me say this. Fourth of all, revenge makes us think that we're in control. All right, look with me in chapter 15. Everybody in chapter 15 still? Okay, watch this. 
Revenge makes us think we're still in control. That's that's one of the dangers of revenge. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. And Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you, and after that I will what? Cease. All right, I'm going to do this one time. Okay, this is it. I'm going to do this one more time. Okay, one more time I'm going to find revenge, and then I'm just, I'm going to stop it. I, we can't, this can't continue. But you know, you know the fallacy is that you can't tame revenge. It's a rogue. You can't put it back in its cage once it's out. It's very, very, very difficult. And by the way, revenge breeds more revenge. It multiplies, and, and, and revenge gets into our blood. It intoxicates us. It makes us feel invincible, and, and it tells us we're in control and we can quit when we want to, but that's a lie. Revenge, you're not controlling your revenge. Your revenge is controlling you. And after this, after Samson makes that statement, he does more killing. Well, I'm going to do it this one time, and, and then I think I'll stop. No, Samson, sorry, you don't, have the handle, you don't have the handlebars on this baby. It's downhill, and you're hanging on for life. No, it's pulling you along. If you go to Niagara Falls, and you get out on the river and you fish, there's signs posted that are saying you're approaching the point of no return. You're 100 yards from the point of no return. And when you get to the point of no return, like a young boy named Roger did in his boat, you get to that point. Once you cross that point, you can, you can rev your in, you can spin it around, you can do anything, you, but you've crossed the point of no return, and the power of the river sweeps you toward the falls and death. I want to tell you what happened to Samson. Samson went past the point of no return, and there was no, there was no reversing, there was no reversing his direction. Now, the other day I talked about Samson's kryptonite, okay? What was the antidote for pride? The antidote for pride was what? Humility, okay? We talked about bending the knee. Samson stood up and said, uh-uh. Nah, no, you're not pushing me around. Whereas the son of the living God got down on his knees with a bowl and a basin, bended his knee and washed the grimy feet of his unworthy disciples. Bend the knee. That's the antidote for pride. Well, what's the antidote for revenge? It's, it's, it's forgiveness. It's being willing to forgive. Now stay with me because you, you, we've got to get this down. We, we've got to understand. I, I, I'm not saying that Samson's job was to become buddies with the Philistines. He was, he was put where he was to lead the people out. I'm not saying he should have been friends with them. I am saying he should not have allowed revenge to become the driving motivation of everything he did. It should have been for the glory of God. And had he done that, he'd have never broken his Nazarite vow. So how do we respond when someone does us wrong? How should we respond? Romans 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Listen to this statement. Recompense no man evil for evil. Is that interesting to you? Why did God say that? Recompense no man evil for evil, because God knows our tendency is to get... If, you going to do that? I'm, I'm going to do, do it right back at you. Evil for evil. 
That's our nature, evil for evil. Slap me, I'll slap you. Okay? You slap me, I'll slap you. Evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Paul doesn't say we ought to eradicate our desire for justice. That's not what Paul's saying. He's simply saying we ought to let God handle it. Look at me. Paul isn't saying don't, 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 you know, don't feel like justice should be. Get, get rid of your desire for justice. Paul didn't say you had to bury your desire for justice. Paul said leave it alone. I will repay, God said. That's the Bible. By seeking revenge, we assume God's authority upon ourselves. When we seek revenge, we say, okay, this is, normally, this is normally God's right, but I'm assuming God's right. I become my, when I seek revenge, I become my own God. It's the ultimate form of humanism. Because I'm going to do what God should do. I'm going to get even. Now, if forgiveness is the antidote for revenge then we've got to understand what forgiveness is. So, so let, me, let me take just a second, before I give you the definition of what I'm talking about forgiveness today, let me tell you what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning what happened. Forgiveness is not uh, excusing it or saying it didn't matter. If it needs forgiving, it obviously did matter. If it's big enough to need forgiveness, it's obviously big enough to matter. Okay? It doesn't mean that you don't establish boundaries. It doesn't mean that you can't protect yourself from being hurt in the future. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation, by the way. Reconciliation is always the goal, but reconciliation requires uh, a willingness from both parties. It's a two-way street. Both parties have to cooperate for reconciliation to happen. Forgiveness is a one-way street. You can forgive someone who is dead and can't speak and can't even accept your forgiveness. You see, forgiveness doesn't require a response. Forgiveness depends on your heart, not theirs. Okay? So what is real Bible forgiveness? All right, you ready? Here it is. Forgiveness is letting go of your desire for revenge. If I I forgive somebody, we think, well, i got to just... I, you know, I just, I, don't, I, I, can't even, I can't even recognize that what they did was wrong. No, that's no, you just, no, what they did was wrong, but you've got to let go of your desire for revenge. You've got to drop the revenge factor. You can't, you can't get even. It's setting people free from our plots to get even. It's handing it all to God. And by the way, sometimes that's a process. But in the process of giving it to God, you know what happens to me? I get to go free. Because I'm walking around, I'm walking around, stay with me, I'm walking around carrying this thing, and I've got this burden, i got to get even, i got to get even, man, this thing's killing me, I can't sleep at night, you know what they did to me? This is heavy, I've carried this for months, years, the longer I carry it, the heavier it gets, and I can't, I just, I, just, I can't, I can't, I can't believe they got by with it, this is eating me alive, then all of a sudden, I don't have to say, well, 
you know, I don't care if they did or not. It don't mean nothing to me. No, it does mean something to me. That's why I need to forgive them. But when I finally say, you know what, God, you're great enough and big enough and fair enough and justice enough, you'll deal with this better than I will. And I set this burden down. Do you know who goes free? I do. Because I don't have to carry the burden anymore. So now all of a sudden, you see Dean, and he's walking around singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. Mr. Bluebird's on my shoulder. I'm having a wonderful day. You know why? Because I just dropped a really big, heavy burden with somebody's name on it. You see, that's important. Now, why should we forgive? First of all, Jesus taught us to forgive because we've been forgiven. Remember the story in Matthew chapter uh, 5? There were two servants. By the way, I checked this out. I checked this out. I, I couldn't believe it when I first saw it. I checked it out. The first servant owed what is the equivalent of six to seven billion dollars today. It would have taken a man 200,000 years to earn that payback. And yet, it was a staggering sum. That's why Jesus gave such an elaborate sum. And yet, he was forgiven. The second servant who owed that man who had been forgiven $4,000 would have taken, would have taken uh, not near as long to obviously pay that back, was not forgiven. The guy that had just been forgiven of the incredible amount would not forgive the guy that owed the lesser amount. And so when, when the Lord heard about that, he had him thrown in prison. And listen to the words of this. Listen to the words in Matthew 18, verse 34. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that that was due to him. Who did he deliver him to? The tormentors. Do you know this? The most tormented people I have ever been a part of in my life. I've pastored them. I've pastored them. Are people that could not let go of revenge. They couldn't forgive. They're tormented. They're tormented in every area of their life. Every other relationship. They don't have friends. Every other relationship is tormented. And you talk with them and they're just grinding inside. And they're grinding because they've never forgiven. So we're to forgive because we've been forgiven more than they have. You'll never have to forgive anybody more than Jesus had to forgive you. Trust me with that. Number two, we forgive for Jesus' sake, not ours. Ephesians 4.32, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven them, kind, tender, heart of forgiving one to another. Wait a minute. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know why God forgave me? Not because I was a great guy. He forgave me because Jesus was a great Savior. God didn't say, I'm going to forgive you, Dean, because you're the most wonderful person in the world. God said, I'm going to forgive you because my son died for you. So whether you forgive somebody or not doesn't tell me what you think of them. It tells me what you think of him. The motivating factor to forgive people is because of what we think of Jesus, not because of what we think of them. And then we're to forgive to be more like Jesus. Somebody said, you'll never be more like Jesus than when you forgive. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, then said Jesus, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. They have no idea. Lord, just forgive them. You'll never be more like Jesus than when you are forgiving. I'm reading a book.
Honestly, I cannot tell you how deeply convicting it is. Reading it through tears. It's an impactful book. Unbelievable. It's called, how, it's called As We Forgive by Catherine Claire Larson. And it recounts the stories of those that survived the Rwandan genocide of 1994. It's estimated that somewhere between uh, 800,000 and a million people were slaughtered within a span of 100 days by their own countrymen. 300,000 of those that were slaughtered were children. And it's the story of of human beings that committed grievances and atrocities. And the story of human beings that had those atrocities committed against them and their families. The story of a young lady whose arm hangs, dangles by her side and she can't plant her garden anymore because she was macheted. People that walk around with creases through their orbital bone and their eye put out because somebody took a, a sickle and, and chopped them across the face. A young, man, a young man who lost 174 members of his own family unit, butchered, bleeding in the village by his own neighbors. It's an unbelievable story. After that, the prisons became so overcrowded that they decided they could not continue to house all of these. So in 2003, the decision was made to release 40,000 prisoners of these people back into their villages. And the Rwandans said, the president's insane. He's lost his mind. What is he doing? How can they come back to our villages and, 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 and become reacclimated into our society and our culture when they killed our loved ones? The people that were released were saying, I'll never be able to go back there. They'll kill me for what I did. And so throughout Rwanda, there was this in, incredible struggle. The justice system uh, had... had uh, had been left in shambles and there were no real functional courts to try anything or to, to even deal with conflicts once these people came back together into society. And so they held something that was ancient and known called gachacha meetings. A gachacha meeting. It's where the community would come together and the wise elders of the village would meet. They would, they would bring the people that had been in prison back to the village, and the people that the crimes had been committed about, they would meet in these gachacha meetings with all of the village there together. And they would discuss what had to be done to make things right. And so the perpetrators, the victims of, the families of victims, the victims themselves, the community leaders, the village, they were all there. And the meetings were based totally upon 
truth and confession, which would hopefully lead to forgiveness. You could not, you could not withhold one drain of truth. So the perpetrators would come before the family, fall down on their knees, and say exactly what they had done and beg for forgiveness. And the elders in this experiment of the Gachacha meeting would try to work out solutions. And these perpetrators, they built homes for families they had burned out. They came and served. They promised their life to serve, to love, to show their repentance in the way that they lived. Those Guchacha meetings were held under what's called the Umuvumu tree. It's, it's actually a wild fig tree. But there's great symbolism there. Because as you, as you cut off a bark of the Umuvumu tree and you peel that bark away, the tree responds to the wound. And it little small webbing of crimson roots cover that gouge and they form over it to protect, to protect the tree. And it's under the shade of this Umuvumu tree that these Guchacha meetings are held where lives are put back together, people that hated, people that feared, people that despised, people that wounded and injured each other come back together. They take that webbing now from these trees and they make purses, ceremonial garb, wallets, book covers, maps of Africa. They take that, that webbing and they use it to make something. And the message, the message of the Gachacha meeting and the Umuvumu tree is that from the wounds of the tree come things of beauty and things of usefulness. Now, this is, this is the question. It, it's simply this. Have you been wounded? I mean, we, we, we bleed, don't we? Uh, see, Samson thought he was bulletproof. Oh, he, he wasn't bulletproof. But in his bleeding, rather than trying to find what God would have him do, he simply went off on another rage. We can't do that. We can't, we can't live by the fist. We can't live, we can't live to exact revenge. And if, if you're here today and, 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 and you've been wounded, I, I want to tell you, somebody scarred you. You know what that book has said to me? That book has said to me as I've is I've read the story of people whose lives have been obliterated, who carry with them the dangling limbs of, of, of the atrocities that, that wrecked that nation during those years. You know, what I've, you know what I've read? I've read, dear God, Dean, you're telling me that these people can forgive that? And you struggle with this? Are you telling me 
that, that this guy did that to her family and, and her arm is useless and he comes to her and falls on his knees before her and sobs and weeps for, for repentance and she lets him free? And you walk around with a little root in your top pocket and can't let it go. Some of you may need to forgive mama, daddy, brother, sister, uncle, neighbor, teacher, pastor, friend, stranger. If I could transport you to Rwanda and you can look in the face of these people and see that somehow God gave them the grace to forgive, you'd be convicted too. Now here it is. You can choose revenge. And by the way, revenge doesn't mean you slap them. Revenge may just mean you, you exile them in your heart. You don't treat them like you should. Revenge can be a silent treatment. It doesn't have to be screaming. It may be that you say nothing at all and you exile them. That's why, that's why, that's why that it's so powerful in our prison systems and all. When you put somebody in solitary confinement, you may have confined them from your life. Sometimes that's more painful than the screaming and the cursing. So you can, you can exact revenge or forgive. Listen carefully. The one sets you free and the other imprisons you. 40,000 people were set free from prison in Rwanda, but a whole bunch more have gone free under the gachacha tree. Let's bow our heads, could we? So we're talking about revenge, and we're talking about the antidote. And the antidote for revenge is forgiveness. Listen to me, friend. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Preacher, just this one more time, and then I'm done. No. You're, you're intoxicated. It's handling you. You're not handling it. Let it go. Let it go. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. You'll wind up under the broken ruins of Dagon's temple, crushed by your very own quest for revenge. It'll claim you as it claims them. Let it go. Forgive. Well, Pastor, I don't know. You don't, you don't know what they did. No, no, but God does. And that's, that's where your trust has got to be. God's able. He's God. You're not. Let it go. Don't be God. Don't play God. Let it go. God will handle it far better than you or I could ever possibly handle it. Leave it with the Lord. And you'll go free. Lord Jesus, we need help because we're weak. Dear God, we are so frail in this area. Dear God, we cling on to things that have been done against us. We hang on to them. It's a root that continually grows. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that we would learn to forgive, to bury our plans for revenge, even if it's just the feeling of our heart, and to give it to you. Help us, Lord, to be like Jesus, I pray. In your name, amen.